0: Um, is a little shorter this week for a couple of reasons, mainly, uh, we could, we could either, we could either do a a slightly shorter one or a much, much longer one, um, entering into the next section would be all encompassing. And so I decided, well, we'll just do a few. Um, it's also helpful that, uh, Philip has let me borrow this commentary by Martin Lloyd Jones, which has been really, really helpful to me and he has a lot to say and, um, so that's, that's part of it. There's a lot of really, really good stuff in these couple of verses that have, I learned about this week. And so lots of good things to share. Um, well, it's interesting. So what is happening in these three verses is this is an application of the theology, basically, that Paul has given to us in verses 1 through 11. So he has expounded an idea. He's explained to us this idea um, and now he wants us to apply the idea to our lives. Um, and it's it's an interesting thing that he's doing here because this is really important for us. In the sense that a lot of people, uh, well, first of all, we, we live in a very polarizing society, right? We live in a world where basically you're, you're either one or the other. Like you, there's really not a whole lot of gray area in the world that we live in. So... You're like you're either a Republican or a Democrat. You're either city folk or country folk. Or like from where I'm from, you either like the Astros or you like the Rangers. Like you can't like them both. If you're from Texas, you know what I'm talking about. Like you're either from Houston and you like the Astros, or you're from anywhere else in the state of Texas and you like the Rangers. Right? There's there's just no overlap. You're not allowed to like both teams. It's one or the other. You have to choose your camp. Um, and we it's really it can be helpful in certain things in our life but it's really dangerous a lot of the times when it enters into the church and especially with this idea because there are a lot of people whom I know who have told me over the years like well I just don't worry about that theology stuff I just love God and I love people and that's the end of it like I don't I don't bother myself with reading or studying or doing any of that Um, and then on the other side There are people who say, well, all they do is read and study, and they forget to apply the things that they learn to their lives. And so this is a problem that we have, I think, and what we don't want to do is we can't just be in one side or the other. We have to do both, right? We can't just run around telling people, well, I'm just going to love God. If you don't know what God's law is, if you don't know who God is revealed to you in the word, how are you going to love him properly? We have to know who he is. We have to read the Bible. We have to study. We have to care about those things. We have to give our time to that. But at the same time, if that's all we do, if we read and read and read and read and we forget to apply those things to our lives, um, we also get into trouble. Uh, there was this a pastor that I met many years ago um, over in Durango. Well, he wasn't a pastor anymore um, because he had gotten to a place where he said that he didn't apply the own, his own sermons to his life. And so he was applying it to everybody that he was preaching to in the church, um, but he wasn't listening to himself. He wasn't learning from his own study, uh, and he fell into sin and was no longer a pastor anymore. And this is the danger, right, is that we can fall into one of these camps, one or the other, um, and this is not where we want to be. John 13, 17 If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is a statement from Jesus, right? Super simple. There's nothing hard to understand about that, but it encompasses both of these things. We have to know what God's law is, and we have to do it. So Paul has been giving us theology now in these first 11 verses, right? Over the last two weeks, we looked at those verses. Now, this week, we're going to see how he commands us to apply these ideas to our life. So if this is the application, the first question that we would want to ask is, does this fit with the theology that we've been looking at? You see, we can read the Bible and we can get confused and we can say, am I really understanding what he's saying? Do I understand what's going on here? And a good test for that is, did we understand the theology correctly if we read the application, these three verses, and they fit? If they don't fit, then we made a mistake somewhere, right? We would go back and we would want to say, wait, if this is his application, but that doesn't fit what we learned in the first 11 verses, then maybe there's a problem. You see, there is this theological argument that spurs out of these first 11 verses that we should be sinless. That if we are dead to sin, that means that we no longer will struggle with it. That there should not be sin in our life ever again if we have died to it. But the application doesn't match that idea. So what is Paul's application to us? Does it fit? Well, that's what we're going to hopefully see here. So let's read these verses again. Um, It's a short passage, but once again, I think there's a lot going on here. So it says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under the grace. So the first thing to see here is that there is A difference between your mortal body and you. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is not the same thing. right? You is the identity of who you actually are. And in Christ... You are something far different than what your mortal body is trying to get you to do all of the time. Namely, sin, right? Your mortal body, your, your flesh is tempting you on a regular basis to sin, but that's not who you are. And this is really, really fascinating. I don't know how many times I've read the book of Romans, but I've never, ever, ever noticed this. I've never seen this, and I've never seen the dichotomy here or the the conflict here between what he is saying here is that your mortal body and you, these are very, very different things. And what's really interesting is this idea of the Bible. We see it over and over and over again that there is a promise, and the fulfillment of that promise doesn't happen Immediately. There's the already and the not yet, right? That God declares us justified, but when we look into our own heart and into our own soul, we say, wait a minute, I just sinned, like this morning. How is it that I am justified? How is it that I am righteous? How is it that God is calling me clean when I am regularly falling to sin? These things don't seem to add up. God has declared us these things, but they have not come to full fruition yet, right? There will come a day when we are perfectly just, right? When we will no longer sin. Today is not that day. And this is the theme of the Bible over and over and over again. What God has promised, and we know it's going to be true. We know it is even true to some sense in our life in the moment. But that it's not fully realized. If you think about Abraham... God made a lot of promises to Abraham that he never saw the fruition of. He promised him the land, right? And Abraham sort of wanders around in it, but it's never really his. God says, This is going to be your possession. And then he says, You're going to have lots of kids. In fact, your descendants are going to be larger than the stars in the sky. And he has one, right? He has one son. Or at least one legitimate son that he understands to be his or that God declares as his, right? And so he doesn't see that. But if we look a couple generations down the road when Moses brings the people out of Israel, there's what? Almost a million of them. Abraham is given a promise. It's a guarantee that it will happen, but he doesn't see it come to pass in his life. You see, we are told through Christ that we are righteous. We are told that we are being sanctified, that we are justified. And this is a guarantee And in some sense, this is absolutely true for who we are in this moment. And yet we're fighting against that mortal flesh. We're fighting against the temptation and the sin that's in our life. We suffer from it. And so practically speaking, these promises are not fully realized. And this is what Paul is speaking to, right? This is what he is telling us. We, the you, the true you, your true identity as a follower of Jesus, as somebody who is justified, is fighting back against the person that you used to be, the mortal flesh that is still in your body. The sinfulness is not you. It's the mortal flesh. It's a part of who you are, but it's something that we haven't shed yet. And so we have some conflict And who we truly are and the remnant of who we were. Now, this is not an argument against our flesh, right? There are lots and lots of people throughout history who have said, well, then the flesh must be bad. (coughs) This is where monasticism comes from, right? Monks go out into the desert and they just say, well, then I'm just going to, I'm I'm only going to drink water and eat bread. And I'm going to deny every single thing that my flesh desires because my flesh must be bad. No, what happens in Genesis when God creates man? He says, is very good he's looking at the flesh and blood of Adam and Eve and he says this is very good it's not that our flesh is inherently bad it's that we have allowed it to be corrupted with sin that we have allowed it to be tainted it is not what it was created to be and so our flesh in and of itself is not bad the temptation towards sin is a thing that we're fighting so don't think of yourself as the mortal flesh, as the thing that is corrupted. Think of yourself as your true identity, or what God has created us to be. Don't think about who you were, but think about who you are, because this is something very, very different. Paul says this well again in Philippians. Flip over to Philippians chapter 3. <coughs> This is what he says. This is verse 20 and 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things unto himself. You see, the full transformation is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And it's a promise from God. And at any time that God makes a promise to us, we can count it as a guarantee. Even though we haven't seen it, even if we haven't seen evidence of it, we know that it's true. So we're not perfect now. The flesh is going to win from time to time, right? And that's what Paul is telling us. There's a fight that has to happen. And we have to remain strong and continue fighting. But there are, there are going to be days and there are going to be moments when that mortal flesh is going to win out. And this is what is important because this confirms our previous understanding, the first 11 verses. We didn't walk away from that saying, well, then I guess God expects me to be perfect. If I'm dead to sin, then I must not be able to ever sin again. And if I do, then that must mean that I'm not a Christian. Many people have walked away from the first 11 verses thinking that that was true. But if that was true, Paul wouldn't tell us this. He wouldn't give us a command to fight back. He wouldn't tell us that we have a mortal flesh that's in our body that we are fighting back against. So just because that mortal flesh is there, it doesn't mean that you have to let it reign. And how does it do this, right? How does it try to reign? It's trying to make make us obey by taking the normal human instinct that God created us with and it is trying to pervert those things. You need to eat, right? You have an instinct that guides you to eat. But to overeat or to only eat foods that you know are not good for you, this is a perversion of the instinct that God has created us for. We have the instinct to procreate. But to do that with somebody who is not your spouse is once again a perversion of the instinct. Men, we have, a, we have an instinct, a desire to protect the things that belong to us. Right? Not, not our possessions, but our family. Like, we want to protect our wife and our children. But if we do that in the wrong context, it's sinfulness. The answer is not to shut down our desire to eat or our desire for sex. It's to make sure that we are channeling those desires in the right way, in the way that God has created us to do that. So don't let your mortal body take over. Don't let it reign. Don't let it pervert the things that God has made good and holy. If you are a Christ follower, you don't obey the passions of your flesh. Let Christ reign in your moral body. Don't let your mortal flesh reign. Don't let your sinful desire take over. So the second thing that we're going to see, and this is in verse 13. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God As those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to those, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So Paul's making it very plain and very clear, right? This is a choice that you are making. This is a choice that all of us are contended with every single day, many, many, many times during the day. Do not present your members to sin. Now, Paul is not just making a, a. a statement. He's painting a word picture. Do you, can you picture this with me for a moment? Don't present the members of your body over to the sinful desires. Think, if you want to personify this, think about the seven-headed dragon out of Revelation. You want to think about the scariest image of Satan that I know of in the Bible? That's it for me, right? He's there and he's like ready to devour the, the, the newborn, right, that's coming out of the woman. This is a scary picture of what Satan looks like. A dragon with seven heads, right? venom dripping down from his face. I mean, I don't know how big he is, but he's got to be big, and it seems very scary to me. Now, picture yourself when you give in to sin, because here's the thing. We want to convince us, ah, it's not that big of a deal. God loves me and he's going to forgive me. And, you know, really, who cares at the end of the day? I've done it a million times before, so what's one more time? It doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. Picture yourself giving that part of your body over to the seven-headed, venomous dragon who is going to destroy that part of your life. You are willingly handing that over to him. That's what he's trying to show us here. Don't, don't willingly give that to sin. If you're tempted to even think that your sin is not a big deal, paint that picture in your mind every single time you're tempted. Every single time you think, I'm just going to give in. I can't fight it anymore. That's what you're doing. You're walking up to a dragon with seven heads and you're saying, here it is. This is part of my body. This is part of my mind. This is part of my thought process. This is part of my imagination. And I willingly hand it to you. Devour it. Destroy it. Don't do that. Do not present yourself, any part of yourself, whether it be a physical part of yourself or your thought processes or your mental, anything. Don't present it to sin. It destroys you. It destroys the relationships around you. It destroys every part of who you are. Instead, think about it this way. When you fight back against that sin, instead of presenting your body and your mind and your thought processes over to Satan, imagine presenting them over to the one and true and holy God. Standing there in all of His glory. And when He accepts those things from you, He doesn't destroy them. He doesn't twist them and turn them back on you. But what He does is He uses those things to expand His kingdom. For the glory, for His glory to go further. For the gospel to be presented in further parts of the world. You see, when we give ourselves to the one and true and holy God, the good is coming. But when we present ourselves to Satan, those things are being destroyed. Uh, buddy? Okay, can you go tell Miss Crystal she can help you? <laughs> Sorry, Jennifer's out of town, so they, the, the wits have willingly taken on all three of my children as well. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know about you, but this week, as I was thinking about that, as I was thinking, as I was putting this mental image into my head, Every time I was tempted, it just gave me one more tool in my belt to fight that. It it made the temptation less appealing to me when I thought about the fact that this is what it looks like. That I'm taking part of who I am, part of this true identity, I'm giving it over to the mortal flesh, I'm giving into that, and I'm handing it over to a dragon who will destroy and devour it. I'd much rather give it to God. Now, there are many people who have said, well, this is not for us to do. It's not possible for us. In fact, not only is our justification and our forgiveness um, and our salvation totally in the hands of God, which is absolutely true. But there are many people who have made the argument that your sanctification is also totally in the hands of God, that you do nothing. That you just sit back and do nothing and God will he's gonna be the one to sanctify you. And there's this guy, you may you may remember him, you may not, he's been out of the limelight for a long time. Um, it's at least ten years ago. His name is Tolian Chavidian. Anybody ever heard of this guy? Uh, Billy Graham's grandson. He was a prominent preacher in Florida. He had a huge church, lots and lots of people. He was one of the people, if you know what the Gospel Coalition, he was one of, one of the board members of the Gospel Coalition, and I think it was around 2013-ish, he wrote this book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And he argues in this book that our sanctification is 100% God and 0% you. Don't try. There's nothing you can do. God is going to be the one to refine you and sanctify you. You don't have to do anything. And what do you know? Within a year, he had committed adultery multiple times and he was out of his position. He's no longer a pastor. He has completely destroyed the church that he was that he was leading. He's destroyed his family. Why? Because he said, I'm just going to completely let my guard down. God, you do it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to put forth any effort. I take off the armor of God and I just say, it's up to you. If we do that, sin enters into our life. If we're not willing to stand firm, there's a reason that we, are see, that we see in Ephesians that Paul tells us, put on that armor. Guard yourself. Don't, don't get lazy. Don't allow yourself to just go into little, like, little areas where you know that you're going to be tempted. Guard yourself against all sin. If you don't, Sin is going to take over. It's going to begin to reign. It's going to try and take over and bring you back to that place where you're following your mortal flesh. You're allowing your passions to consume you and to choose what it is that you would do. Paul says we need to make a choice. Make a choice who you are going to present yourself to. And the last thing to say about verse 13 is that the choice is only possible for those who. Who have been saved. It's only for those who have been brought from death to life. He makes a point of this, right? Because here's the thing non Christian, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, don't hear me telling you, somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, who doesn't have faith, well, you just better try harder. That's the thing that's gonna get you saved. That's not who he's talking to. If you're here this morning and you don't trust in Christ and you are not a believer, don't hear what I'm saying and think, I'm just going I'm I'm to put forth more effort. No, there's nothing you can do to please God. There's nothing you can do to earn His forgiveness or His love. This message is for those who are believers. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, Christ's message is very simple. Repent and believe. Confess your sins to God and ask Him to forgive you. And He will. God is faithful to forgive anybody who asks Him. And then once that has happened, then once the justification is there that you have been justified through the works of Christ, not through anything that you have done, when you have faith in Jesus, then you have a choice. A choice is being presented to those who have the Holy Spirit, who have faith. You see, before, you had no choice. Everything you did was sinful. Every single time you made any kind of choice, you were just handing it over to that dragon. Every time. Every time. But now, once you have faith, there is a choice that God has given you. Are you going to continue to do that? Your old self... Or are you going to be who you actually and truly are? As a follower of Jesus, stop handing yourself over to Satan and hand yourself over to God. This last verse is really helpful and really important, but has also once again bred a lot of misunderstanding. For sin will no longer have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. How many of you know somebody who just doesn't care about the Old Testament? Doesn't read it, doesn't bother themselves with the Old Testament law. Like, who cares? We're under grace. We're not under the law. Why would I read the law? Why would I care about the book of Leviticus? It means nothing to me. It has nothing to say to me. It's God's Word. It absolutely has something to say to you and to me for the rest of our life. You see, this verse does not negate the law, ignore it. It no longer has any bearing on your life. What it means is you are no longer under it. Before you had faith in Christ, your, your task, your job was to live up to the Old Testament law. That was it. If you could do that and you could do it perfectly, then you were declared righteous in the sight of God. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever made it through the Ten Commandments and said, I'm still doing good. Where's the rest of them? We can't even make it through the first ten before we're like, I'm in a lot of trouble here. There's like 500 more beyond the Ten Commandments. We don't even have to get past the first ten. And we say, Lord, if this is the standard, if I have to obey these things perfectly, I'm in trouble. I can't do it. I've already failed at them. And I'm failing at them every day. What what am I going to do? How am I going to be made righteous? I'm under this law that is crushing me. And there's nothing I can do to get out from under it to save myself because I'm disobedient to it every single day. And God says, there is a way. And his name is Jesus. He has come and he fulfilled that law perfectly so that you don't have to fulfill it in order to be made righteous. Now the law's purpose is that we look at it and we recognize that it's good and we try and obey it so that we can show our love to the Father. See, a lot of people want to paint Jesus as like this complicated and hard to understand figure, right? We read something from him earlier. Another thing that he says, it is as simple as day and as easy to understand as anything else in the Bible. He says, look, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. As simple as that. We don't obey them so that we can be righteous. We're not obeying them so we can gain God's love or his forgiveness. All of that is gained through the work of Christ. None of us can do anything to gain any of that. God did all of that through Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection. What we are called to do now is to look at the law and say, I want to obey this because this is how I show God my love. I want to be obedient to him in everything that I possibly can. You're no longer under it in the sense that it is crushing you and that it is what brings you righteousness, but it is still there. And so now we are under grace. This is the work of Christ. This is what God has done through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, through his perfect life, that he fulfilled that law perfectly, so that we don't have to. So God is giving us something that we don't deserve, right? He is giving us heaven, he is giving us all of these things, He gives us the righteousness of Christ, even though we don't deserve it. This is who we are. This is the reality in which we live in when we have believed on Jesus. So my challenge to you this morning is very similar to what it's been the last couple of weeks, right? Because this is the application of the, of the theology that we learned in the first 11 verses. That we have a choice. That we can fight back against the sin that is trying to take control of us. And if we let our guard down, it will. It will. It will come back in. It's not to say that you will lose your salvation, but you will find yourself in a place that as a Christian you thought you would never be. So God's call to each one of us is to fight back against that sin, to fight that temptation and never give up. And hopefully this week we have one more piece to that puzzle that to, to remind you, to paint that picture for you, to give you this image that when you fall into temptation and that when you allow yourself to sin, that that's what it is. That you're handing that part of you over to the dragon, over to the enemy. It is a big deal, and we are called to fight it. We are called to present ourselves to God and not to Satan, into righteousness and not into unrighteousness. It's a difficult task. I'm fighting it the same as you are, right? We might be fighting different things, and we might be fighting them at different times, and it looks a little different. But we're all fighting, and we're doing it together. This is why we come together as a church, right? That we can fight these things amongst one another, amongst fellow Christians, that we're not trying to do this on our own. Not only do we have each other, but we have the Holy Spirit, right? God has given us power beyond anything we have ever known in our previous life. In any, before we were Christians, we, we've never understood what it is until we have the Holy Spirit. So this task is hard, but God has given us the ability. He's given us the choice to fight back and to win. Don't allow yourself to be defeated thinking there's just no way I could possibly outlast this. There's no way that I can win this fight. You can. God has given you the strength and the ability to fight and to win. How long are you willing to fight? Are you, are you willing to go as long as it takes until you can win? All right, let's pray. <coughs> Father, we love you. Grateful for this imagery of handing over part of who I am to you, sitting on your throne in all of your glory with light surrounding you, the hosts of heaven singing your praises. Lord, you have strengthened each one of us through the Holy Spirit to be able to be obedient to you, to give ourselves to you for righteousness' sake. What a beautiful picture and image that is. Lord, we are in a fight every moment of every day of our life. and We can't do it without you. We can't win these fights without you. So Lord, we come before you humbly this morning asking you to strengthen us. Asking you to remind us that if we continue, that when we, are, we persevere through and fight those temptations, Lord, that you are with us. That you will stand beside us and that you will never forsake us. It's through your power, we can win the fight against our mortal flesh. That we don't have to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. Would help us to remember this every moment that we are tempted. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his holy name that we pray these things. Amen.